What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? This is the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And on today's episode, we sit down with Paige Adams-Geller. Paige is the founder and creative director of her namesake brand, Paige, which she launched in 2004 after years of being one of the top fit models in the industry. What started out as a women's denim brand quickly expanded into a full lifestyle collection for men and women sold at premium retailers internationally. In this episode, we talk about everything from Paige's upbringing growing up in Alaska, what motivated her as a kid, her successful career as a fit model, and some of the challenges that came with it, the opportunities she saw in the denim space that led her to launch her own brand, what she's most excited about for the future in terms of the fashion industry, and much more. Here we go. Paige, well, first of all, thank you for being on the show with us. Um, you know, we always like to hear about where our founders are from and what their backstory is. Uh, so tell us a little bit about, you know, young Paige and who she was as a as a little girl. Sure. Um, well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm super excited to be here. And oh, wow. You know, it's kind of wild thinking about my history because I was actually born in Utah six weeks early. So I came out of the womb when my mom and dad were living in California when my mom was visiting my parents. And then I lived in Southern California until I was six. And then my parents made a big move to Alaska, which is where my dad grew up. And so at six years old, um, at the beginning of first grade, We moved up to Alaska, and it was a whole new adventure and experience for me, very different, obviously, from Southern California. And um, I I feel fortunate when I really look back at that phase of my life. I lived in Alaska from 6 until 16, um, my formative years, and did all of my schooling there. And my first experience in Alaska was going to first grade, and I was a little bit late in the school year when we moved up up to Alaska. And so the teacher gave me a whole bunch of homework and said, I just kind of want to see where you are in class. So why don't you take this home and do it at your own pace and then come back and we'll see where you are. So like me, I've got OCD and I'm a little crazy, brought the homework home, did it all in one night, brought it back to my teacher. And she said, um, I think I need to have a talk with your parents. And I was like, oh, no, I'm in trouble already. I just moved here. Mm -hmm. And the teacher said, I want to move you up to second grade. I think you're ahead of the class, and we're going to move you up to second grade. So um, I spent second grade through my senior year in Alaska, and I loved it. You know, I feel like what was so wonderful about Alaska was the beauty and the nature and this expansive place. But at the same time, there was a feeling a little bit of isolation. And we only had three TV stations at the 12th four. There was ABC, CBS, NBC, and PBS. And, um, you know, we're very far removed from the lower 48. And so as a little girl, I loved to read. So I would check out books from the library, sit at home in front of the fireplace, read books all weekend and you know in the winter what were these books about oh everything like i just loved to read i would read everything from little house on the prairie books to mystery novels to um books like are you there god it's me margaret to fantasies about traveling to europe and and going abroad 
And uh, I, I really just like dove into this world of imagination and they were all fiction and they were all like, I guess, planting little seeds of what I wanted to do, what I wanted to experience and where I wanted to go when I grew up and got out of Alaska. So books on all different different topics. And so paint us like a picture of that vision that you had of what I guess like your adult life would look like at the time when you were a kid. Well, definitely wanted to travel. I felt that even though Alaska is a beautiful place and I felt a little bit isolated from the lower 48, I knew that there was so much more in life. Like I was just this like tiny person in the middle of this whole expansive world. And there was so much that I wanted to know about different cultures. I loved learning about like uh, ancient Rome and culture and ancient Greek culture and the Aztecs and the Mayans and the Incas and like this ancient history. And so I, I felt like I needed to go to those places where there's so much richness and architecture and food and culture. And there's so many differences to what I was exposed to in Alaska. And, uh, and I, and I also would read a lot of magazines and the magazines like turned me into like, you know, just dreaming about the fashion world and what mm. that looked like and going to Paris and shopping on the streets in Paris with my mom or going to Italy and Florence and looking at the beautiful stores and shop window shopping, you know, very different than what Alaska was like. And so I guess like yeah. how old were you when you first started, like when you, when you started traveling, I guess. And where did you go first? And what was that experience like? I was lucky that my parents also liked to travel. And so I think one of the things that happens when you're in a long, dark Alaskan winter, where it's only a few, when there's only a few hours of light during the day is, uh, you get cabin fever. And so my parents were like, we need to, we need to get out of here and go someplace warm. So kind of like this pandemic, right? It's exactly like this pandemic. Yeah. I shared that with someone not too long ago. Cause they said, how are you handling this pandemic? And I said, it's a lot like how I grew up, you know, feeling like you can't go outside. It's too cold. It's 26 below zero. It's dark outside. It's dangerous. And, uh, yeah, so very much like this. But the very first uh, travel that we went to, we used to go to Hawaii a lot. That was a place Alaskans love to go because you could jump on a plane, have a direct flight, and be in the warmth of the sun. And then we were we went on a cruise down into the Caribbean, and I got to bring my best friend, which was so much fun. And I loved uh, going down the streets in St. Thomas and uh, the Virgin Islands and experiencing a, a very unique a tropical experience that was different than Hawaii. And then I had the opportunity um, to be an ambassador for Alaska and to go to Norway. And it was right after they had the Olympics in Norway, the Winter Olympics in Norway. And so I had this whole eye-opening experience in the wintertime in Norway and seeing what that looked like after the Olympics and to see the Olympic ski jumping uh, area and, and all of that and uh, tr walking through the cool streets in Norway and the neon signs. And then I was exposed to music 
that I'd never really been exposed to in Alaska. And I have a love of music. And, uh, you know, I discovered Duran Duran, the Thompson Twins and Wham! And thought, wow, this is so cool. That'll play this music in Alaska. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that that was my first uh, European exposure. And what was really cool is we went to Norway, then we went to Sweden. And while we were walking around on the streets, I'm like, oh, these are my people. Uh, Because I have, I am 99.9% Northern European. Did you do 23 and me? Yeah, I did do 23 and me. (laughs) (laughs) And I was so bummed because I was told my whole life that I was part Cherokee Indian. And I was so excited that I was part Cherokee Indian. And I would tell everyone I've got Indian blood. And I always feel a connection to the spirit of of like the flute and, and Indian, I don't know, incense and so many different things. And when we did 23 and Me, I went, oh, no, I don't have any Cherokee Indian in me whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, I, I did it. And um, I mean, my family's from like, you know, Armenian and like from the Middle East and that, that, that area. But I got 0.1% Native American which I was like really curious to look into. But as soon as I like, I mean, before I could even look into it, <laughs> the data just changes as more people obviously submit, you know, their DNA. So it went to like hundred percent, you know, Armenian and just that the native American was gone. So I don't know where that came from, but it's pretty, it was pretty funny. So Paige, I'm curious, you know, as a kid, cause I know you're a very confident woman now and you've obviously accomplished a lot, which we'll talk about, but as a kid, were you confident? Were you an extrovert? Were you an introvert? Talk to us about, you know, a little bit about how you were like back then. And I'm just curious how that translated to you, translated years later. Wow, that's a good question. I would say that I'm kind of an extrovert, extroverted introvert. It's weird. Mm. It's a, it's, it's, there's a, well, I'm a Gemini. So there's definitely, oh, you are too. Awesome. I'm going to guess your birthday and I have not Wikipedia to you. Okay. Give me a second. Give me a second. You look like you're born on May 24. No. Okay. No. Close. June 6th. June 2nd. June oh, 2nd. Okay. Right in between right there. In the yeah, there June 2nd. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so I definitely have a split personality. It's like um, the, I think the part that I identified the most with, with confidence as a child was my intellect. I was always at the top of my class. I graduated high school when I was 16. Um, I got to graduate early. So I got skipped like a grade and a half, if you will. And that part, I was always very confident with. And I even had a teacher one time put me in my place because I was all upset. They had this court system that they had in class and there would be lawyers and there'd be a judge and there'd be police officers. And if you got in trouble, you'd, they'd, you'd, be written up. There'd be a ticket write up. And then if you had X many tickets, you had to go to court and they were just trying to teach you the judicial system. And I got a ticket and I was so mad because I never got in trouble. And then I was mouthing off a little bit because I said I wanted to be one of the attorneys and I was ticked that I didn't get to be one of the attorneys. And my teacher said to me, Paige, you can't always be number one. You have to let other people be number one sometimes. And I didn't really like hearing that because, like, I was very competitive. I wanted to be number one. And uh, I still hate that <laughs> statement, by the way, because I, I got that statement told all the time, too. And it's just like, why Why would I let somebody else be number one, right? Like, yeah. no one's letting me be number one. I'm earning that number one. If someone beats me to number one, 
all power to them. But I'm not gonna just be like, yeah, let me lose a little bit here. You know what I mean? Like, not, yeah. I'm not, I'm not about that. Not about that. Yeah, me neither. So I, I didn't, I didn't like that statement. But then the part that made me very insecure is um, I was overweight as a child, and kids used to call me Pudgy Pagey and Miss Piggy and tease me. And in PE class, I was always the last one chosen for the team. Um, my parents weren't athletes. They weren't athletic. I wasn't exposed to any of that. I was more musically inclined and like theatrical and artistic and studious. But like I hate, I was always, they'd be like, okay, we'll pick Paige. So I was very insecure about my appearance and very insecure about any team sports. Did 23 and me tell you that you have the muscle composition of an Olympic athlete? <laughs> Because it, because it did for me. <laughs> and I was like, you guys are so wrong because me and the Olympics, the only thing in common is one ring. It also said that I'm, I'm very likely from a music perspective not to recognize pitch. And I, I was really offended because I thought my pitch was pretty decent. Um, so <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, but so what did that do? I guess as you got older, you know, you know, you're in high school and I'm not sure if you decided to go to college after high school and, and what you did there. But how did that affect sort of your more sort of, uh, I guess, early adult life um, being kind of overweight and teased and all that stuff when you were younger? Oh, uh, you know, I think I, I did st still focus on scholastics. And so I think that confidence that was built from, from being the smart girl in class was something mm -hmm. that I held on to and, and always wanted to focus on. But what happened eventually, as I started to get a little bit taller, um, my mom was involved in the pageant world up in Alaska, and I would go with her to all these local pageants. And um, this woman came up to me that was judging one of the pageants, and she says, "You know, you have a really, really pretty face. If you just lost weight, you know, you could you could do more. Um, you should really think about losing weight." And that hit me really hard. But then at the same time, it kind of made me motivated, like, oh, someone noticed me. And I started focusing on doing aerobics and working out and exercising. And I got totally into Jane Fonda's workout. It was like the hype of the time. So I'd get up in the morning before school, I'd work out, and then I'd go to school and then come home. And if I had energy and we'd do Jane Fonda's workout again... And was it those like VHS tapes with like the group groups and stuff? Oh yeah, totally. Like yeah. yeah, I remember like there was like that. There was like Ty Bo, and there was like all these. There was all were these you, by, by any chance were you and Lavinia Erico, the founder of Equinox at USC, at the same time? Because I know that she also did those classes. That's and right. Ended up teaching them at USC. She literally just copied Jane Fonda. And then started like her own business at USC. Oh my gosh! You know what? I don't. I I don't recall. I have to look into that. Yeah, was, got, you guys should connect. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll do an in-person pod with the both of you guys once pandemic's over <laughs> with all these SC female entrepreneurs because we have a bunch of them. That would be so amazing. <laughs> so yeah, eventually what happened is the weight started to come off, and then I was um, noted by some talent scouts because I also loved musical theater and I could sing. So um, I would perform in school and then uh, started entering some modeling competitions and then I got scouted and then I got asked to join teen magazines, great model search. I was picked as a finalist in teen magazines, model search. 
and then started doing some other local pageants that led me to a big international model and talent competition that was in Scottsdale, Arizona. And then I got scouted from there to go to New York. And so it kind of evolved into this other part of my being. And some of it I loved because I could, in pageant world at the time, which was a good out from Alaska to be able to Mm -hmm. see and experience and uh, learn to be a good public speaker and perform and entertain and do different things. Um, I I loved being able to explore that different part of my personality. And they were always scholarship pageants. So you were still focusing on getting a higher education and finding maybe an opportunity and a means to pay for a higher education. Hmm. Paige, I remember when, so I know you went to SC for Mm -hmm. college, but I remember when you uh, visited and were a guest speaker at our fashion class, which I was, uh, you know, for those who know me and are listening, you know, they'll be surprised that I took that class. Uh, but, you know, I thought, wow, what a great class to take and learn about fashion communication. Who would have thought? Um, but there was one thing that really stood out. And to this day, I remember it. And I always tell people that I know this concept and they didn't. Even women, you know, who had not heard about the concept of being a fit model. Right. And I was like, I know that and you guys don't. And I know the person who was like the main person for that because I got to hear from her in class. Um, did that Was that like a just smooth transition from the pageant world to being a fit model or was there stuff that happened in between? There was stuff that happened in between. I actually, so I graduated high school at 16, had been scouted by these talent groups and modeling agents in New York. So I left Alaska and moved to New York and uh, started modeling out there, was scouted by Elite, and then was also mm-hmm. scouted by um, like some acting agents and started going on some auditions out there and exploring that whole world of like soap operas and modeling. And, you know, wow, it was a fast-paced world for a 16-year-old girl that just left Alaska and entered into this city and a lot of crazy experiences that I wasn't really ready for. So to be honest, I felt that it was too fast for me. Uh, I started to fall into the throes of anorexia and because everyone wanted me to lose more weight, lose more weight. And I thought, you know, I better focus on my education and my mind. So I have something to fall back on. So I think the smartest route for me is to go to college now. So I'd been accepted actually at Stanford and USC and really fell in love with USC and what it represented and having that connection and being in Southern California and thinking that I could still explore the entertainment industry and get a great education. So I didn't fall into the world of fit modeling until after USC. Interesting. So kind of talk to us about your experience in college. I mean, um, you know, what did you end up studying and uh, what did you end up doing right after you graduated? I studied broadcast journalism and speech communications. I was at Annenberg School at USC and I loved it. It was so much fun to be part of a university that was so different from my experience in high school, to be on a big campus and to have like sports and the camaraderie and join a sorority. I didn't even know what a sorority was, to be honest, when I, when I started SC and people were like, are you going to rush for a sorority? I was like, I don't really know what that is when I was at orientation. And they're like, you got to rush. So uh, having this whole like fun, um, 
experience that was so different than high school was was amazing and and I loved every minute of it. And I, I loved my major, I loved my professors. I took a lot of marketing classes, which I also loved. And so when I graduated, I thought for sure that I was going to become a broadcaster or I was going to have a talk show host of my own. And I was imagining being able to do some Good Morning Good Morning America talk show. And that's what I was really focused on. But I graduated at 20 and started thinking, I'm only 20 years old and I still had a little bit of bug to like sing and model and entertain. And that's what I what I thought that I wanted to give it one more try. So I entered that world for a bit and just fast track it. It ended up being not healthy for me. I had a lot of Me Too experiences. Uh, I, I, w- I had a modeling agent, a theatrical agent, a commercial agent. A te- you know, everybody was telling me to do something different, to be a th- model. You had to be emaciated to be a fit model, which is another thing I was introduced to. You had to be a healthy size. And I was all over the place like a ping pong ball. And I, and, and I struggled. I was attacked in the workplace. There was a, a lot of issues and it, it wasn't a healthy environment for me. And I realized that me as a commodity isn't a safe place to be and that I'd rather use my brain and figure out something else with my life. But in that transition period, when I was getting healthy from eating disorder and from my attack in the workplace, some older trauma came up that happened to me at the age of 16, where I was a victim of rape. And I started processing all of that. I took on my attacker and then realized that, um, I, I, you know, I needed to just stand still for a while and get healthy. And I fell into this world of fit modeling. And to be a fit model, you have to be... And what does that even mean, Paige? Do you want to explain what that is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of people think a fit model is a fitness model. And in some respects, it is. But it's not modeling fitness clothes or active wear or anything like that. It's You have to be a certain size that is like a dress form that clothing designers can design the clothes and pattern makers can make the clothes off of your body. And it is not glamorous, but the good part that it represents is that you have to be a healthy size and stay consistent and stay healthy to get work. So mostly behind the scenes. Yeah, it's mostly behind the scenes. And, you know, these days that you, you do end up doing a lot of photography for websites if you're a fit model size but um, I loved it. Oh my God, I fell in love with fashion and the whole atmosphere of what that looked like to be in design houses and see everything start from the ground up. It was like fashion 101, you know, working for all of these different types of companies from evening gowns to swimwear to activewear to denim. And I just, I fell in love with it. So I I would go on all these auditions and based on my measurements, they'd decide if they wanted to hire me to be their fit model. I'd come in, try on clothes and then tell, well, a lot of fit models don't speak. They just put on the clothes and let everybody else do the talking. But I was so passionate about it. I'd start telling the designers like, I don't know if I'd wear this with the pockets like that. Like, why don't we change the pockets and put them here? And why don't you put a dart here and a seam here? And like, look at the angles and lines of proportions. Everything looks so much better. And uh, I became requested and became a lot as uh, like 
the best fit model in the industry at the time, especially here in LA. Because not only were you doing the fit modeling, but you were also giving tips and advice to the designers on, on how to go about designing the actual garments. Is that yes. Right? Yeah. I became yeah. more of like a fit consultant and uh-huh. fit expert and technician where I'd really be able to tell the pattern makers, I think you need to move this a quarter inch, move this a half inch, push this seam here, raise the and pocket. Did that come naturally to you? Like were you – I know you mentioned like with magazines as a young kid, like you were like just interested. But did you actually spend a lot of time learning about fashion and pattern making and did you know like the – the sort of science behind it or it was just something that you were passionate about that you had a sort of creative eye for and and you were just pitching your ideas and people received it well? I think it's twofold. Part of it is that I have OCD and um, I had body dysmorphia. So I'd always be obsessed with like what clothes look like on the body and how to make things look better personally. And I used to make clothes for my Barbies. I loved making clothes for my Barbies. But the part that I think is actually the more mathematical side, if you will, or like right side, left side, you know, of the brain shift in that is that my father was an entrepreneur and he was a school teacher turned entrepreneur. And my father is a beautiful builder. He built every house that we lived in in Alaska, started his own company that my mom also worked in. And they he designed every house we lived in, built the house. And he would really look at a plot of land and decide what he thinks would like look best built on that plot of land. So I'd always see him sketching and designing. And the mathematical side of our brain is really into lines, angles, proportions, and how things fit together. And then my brother became an architect and he has a really beautiful interior design mind and can like think about everything that needs to go in a room and lines and angles and proportions and architecture on magnificent levels. And my brain would do the same thing and think about what proportions look on a body and putting fashion together, like what shoes are supposed to go with what silhouette, which is supposed to go with, this kind of top or jacket or outerwear. And so we all, I think we all have that in our DNA and uh, it just worked for me in a different way. And it all came to life. And when I, when I was a fit model. Pink, something that I've always thought about, and I feel like you're the perfect person to ask this question to, uh, and it has to do with your days as a fit model and maybe what you learned from there. But I've always wondered about sizing, right? And it's not like maybe a sexy topic for maybe everyone who's listening to this podcast, but perhaps it is something that people have thought about. I mean, where did that come into play? Like, why was a size 36 waist, for example, a large or or extra large and a 32, a medium and right. How did this all come together? And don't you think that that plays the sizing plays a role in people, both men and women having body dysmorphia issues and having issues overall with, Oh my God, I'm an extra large, even though like, you know, I fit into a large for another brand, for example, right? I mean, I don't know. But like, talk to us a little bit about that, because that's something I've always thought about when it comes to fashion. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a trick, tricky topic, because I think ultimately where it came from uh, were like sizing. If you when people like think about denim sizing, what is accurate? portrayed as a size 27 for a woman is that she has a 27 inch waist and this is like the typical proportion of what 
hips usually occur on a size 27 waist. So there'd be like a hip to waist ratio, waist to hip ratio that a typical size 27 would be based on a size 27 inch waist and like mm. size 28 is a 28 inch waist, but it's your true waist. And with guys, it's like, you've got a 32 inch waist and a jean and, and whatnot. And, you know, I wish I knew the like more like substantial concrete information on this, but I think that what they do is take like the average size. And this was back in the day, the average size mm-hmm. of an American, the average size height of an American and kind of put that data, if you will, into this, into the creativity of pattern making and say, if you're this tall and you're this size as an average American, this is what we're going to put as like a size medium, replace as a size medium into the pattern making system and the forms, the dress forms that you buy. Because these dress forms have been around for hundreds of years and, you know, like, but that's where it started from, like looking at the medians. So even when they would hire a fit model, the fit model that they hire for a brand is based on the median size of their sizing. But things have changed so much over the years. And obviously, like I think nowadays, the, the average size used to be a size eight um, in America. And now the average size is a size 12. So it's for women, right? for women. Yeah. And so now there's different sizing, there's plus sizes, there's missy sizes, there's junior sizes. And I wish I knew I probably need to do a little <laughs> more research on why that is all the way it is. Right, right, right. But yeah, yeah they try to base no, it on the, that's definitely you know, a more than satisfactory response for me because I just never understood like, you know, why certain things are called large or you know mm-hmm. it just and then especially nowadays with how transparent brands have to be because their consumers expect them to be and like how much things are out there and how much the consumers can actually give feedback to brands on you know you just hear about all these issues that come up and you're like oh you know did fashion play perhaps a role in that but that's a whole deep different discussion that we can go into <laughs> um but so you know you're doing this fit modeling work you're doing consulting for them essentially and telling them what should what they should be doing. Um, you know, did you go and find a job in fashion at some sort of company or what did you do after college? Um, after college, I was actually, um, running around modeling and singing and acting and doing all that stuff after college. And then when I fell into the throes of anorexia and then had to take on my attacker and that the aftermath where I found, started to find my voice, um, was working as a healthy fit model. So I worked as a healthy fit model for years. And then I reached the top of my game and was kind of at a plateau where I was making a great living. I had contracts with different companies to be their fit model. Um, I was working for a ton of denim companies in LA that were all part of the premium denim explosion. And I was feeling like creatively stifled. Like I felt like I needed more, like what, 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 what do I want to do next? So I dipped my toe back into doing commercials and acting. And then I met this life coach and a business coach. The business coach was someone who was going to help me figure out if acting was the right trajectory for me. And the life coach was going to help me figure out a passion and purpose in life, if you will, um, because I just needed more. 
and I wanted to give back. And I've always been a person that like has big dreams. And so we soon realized between the two that my, especially my life coach, that my passion and purpose was helping others, the need to empower others because of what I'd experienced in my Me Too experiences and being attacked and that I loved fashion. And so what if I were to start my own company and I could create fashion that would make people feel good and comfortable in their skin and be able to have a strong voice as a female, like what would that look like? And that aha moment hit. It was like, oh my God, this is everything that I've ever done coming full circle into a moment that seems like the absolute perfect career path for me. So before we get into what comes next, um, when you were kind of right before this, when you were doing the fit modeling and working with different, you know, you had different contracts, I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but was it just kind of you employing, for example, your own managers and people like that, but it was kind of your 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 business that you were running or did you work for like a larger company that employed fit models that they would contract out for like for you? Um, I, I, at first I, I had a modeling agent, uh, they were, it was a modeling agency called models models who this really awesome woman who supported herself through law school, um, started. So she was a fit model. That's how she paid for law school. And then she decided to open an agency to help to, to promote this part of modeling that not a lot of people knew about. And she would send me out on auditions and then I'd book the jobs and uh, we worked from there. After a while, um, I started getting jobs on my own accord through word of mouth. And I was able to just go on my own and be a freelancer. So I started running and managing my own business and, uh, and was fully freelancing at that stage and just, you know, making my own uh, schedule, going to the jobs, mm-hmm. picking and choosing where I wanted to go, what, what I wanted to do. And this was like, I can imagine obviously before the times like social media and, and, and sort of everyone having um, the ability to, to showcase their work or themselves on social media. And so mm-hmm. did you feel like at this time before you were thinking about starting your own company or brand that you had made sort of a name for yourself in the industry? Did you feel comfortable about people knowing who you were or were you still kind of just, you know, low key, like you, you knew you, you had done a lot, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't the type of space that sort of, I don't know, a lot of people knew who you were. Like, how, how did you feel about all that? Um, it was interesting when, when that aha moment clicked, um, that this is definitely the trajectory I should take in starting my own company. I was known as the fit model that was like the fit doctor, because if a company was in turmoil and they're, they had beautiful designs, but their clothes weren't selling because they didn't fit. They'd call me up and say, Hey, you need to come in. Can you please come in and help us with our fit? Because I hear that everything that you fit sells. And Mm. there was, uh, especially in the premium denim market, I was working for seven for all mankind, citizens of humanity, true religion, Joe's jeans, habitual Dickies, like every lucky jeans, um, all the denim companies that were exploding in LA, um, I would go in and fit for. And so and what, what happened, time period was this for context? Oh yeah. This was, um, the late nineties and in the okay. early two thousands. So, so denim was pretty hot back then. Yeah. It was a premium denim explosion was happening in LA yeah. and it was on fire. 
And what was exciting about my reputation is that if a company had an ill fit and retailers didn't want to buy their brand anymore, because they'd be saying, I'm sorry, it's just not selling, it's not retailing, it doesn't fit. Then they'd say, well, we just hired Paige and she's going to come in and she's going to fix everything and like give us another chance. And then it would work. And so there was this spark that occurred in that aha moment of, wow, I've really built a, built a name for myself and I have a reputation. And if I really can put my pedal to the metal and get my mindset on what this vision that I could create would look like, I know I'd be able to get my foot in the door with the product because they'd be like, oh my God, this is so great. This is going to fit. And the other part of the equation is that what was happening, especially in the premium denim market, is the premium denim world was ran by a bunch of men that they kind of called the denim mafia because it, they were all these guys that were all related to each other and they were all starting up different companies. And if one company failed, they'd leave and start another company. And it was all the same group. And there was not a lot of new blood in this premium denim world. And there was especially no women that were running a company or designing the premium denim for a company. Are you talking about the brands themselves, like the people behind Seven and all these different brands? Or are you talking about the manufacturers that were supplying these brands? The the brands and the designers. So the brands, okay. the, the CEOs and the people running the company were men. And then the design team that were designing and creating the product were all men as well. Mm-hmm. Paige, you know, when I think about your story and what led to the launch of uh, your brand, Paige, um, you know, I, I always think about the fact that a lot of people, a lot of the great entrepreneurs had to hit like the lowest point of their lives, right? Whether it was a life changing moment or, you know, a life altering moment in a sense that was so unexpected or a realization that this isn't what I want to do. Right. And then you hit this moment of either depression or just severe anxiety or just loneliness or whatever, right? Like the lowest point you could be at. Mm. And you realize at one point, in my opinion, because I've hit that point, this is a great opportunity, right? I cannot go any lower than this, (laughs) right? I mean, like what can cause me to go lower than this? Um, So you start to learn about things that you could do, right? I don't necessarily want you to focus on the lowest points of your life at that point, but what was your mindset and how did you get yourself out of it and launch your company in 2004? Well, I think that when I took on my attacker, that was definitely one of the lowest points in my life because basically what happened was being attacked. I I went to the rape treatment center to get help and I'd never been to therapy. I'd never talked to anyone about, um, any issues or problems or anything I had in all my Me Too experiences while in the workplace. And when I went to this therapist and started spilling my guts about being attacked in the workplace, she asked me about my past and my history. And a lot came up for me. And it was all of a sudden the voice of a 16-year-old little girl, you know, in Alaska that was raped. And I you know, I really had a difficult time speaking those words because I had kept a secret for 13 years. And secrets make you sick. Like the more you hold on to a secret, the more it eats at you and wears you and and, and 
takes on many forms of demonism, I guess, if you will, and self-sabotage. And I think at that low point, the thing that started to pull me out is, you know, I wasn't raised this way. I wasn't raised to be someone who was going to be smashed down. I was raised to take charge. I had that entrepreneurial spirit because my parents were entrepreneurs. I had a fight to want to win and be number one. And I'm like, I can't lose my voice. I have to find my power. So when I took on my attacker, I felt like I found my voice. I found my strength and started realizing that I, I, I do have strength in me that I didn't realize I had. And that voice is what started to whisper, find your passion, find your purpose. And then when I did realize that, the aha moment, like, oh my God, this is it. I want to start my own company. I'll have my own voice. I'll be able to express myself creatively. I'll be able to run a business where I can empower others. I'll have a safe work environment and I can do everything I love. I can use my marketing skills. I can use my uh, journalism skills, skills. I can use my personal appearance skills and I can create beautiful product that makes people feel comfortable in their skin and comfortable in their genes, G-E-N-E-S. And it all came in, in, and literally at that moment, it happened so fast when I made the decision that that's what I wanted to do. That was like May 1st, 2004, when that, that life coach planted that seed. I retired from all of my fit modeling jobs in June, 2004. I said, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. I've got another concept, met with potential investors. And by July 1st, 2004, I started the company and had the first line together uh, by September 2004 and was showing it and launching it in New York at the Coterie Trade Show. And it was like Mm -hmm. all the stars came into alignment and it was like, oh my gosh, this is happening. And I've never looked back. And that was 16 years ago, almost 17. And I want to talk about yeah, I want to talk about those early days of, of Paige, but before we do, kind of going back to the sort of the topic of, um, you know, I like how you we talked about therapy, but also life coach and and business coach, and these are all things that I feel like in the past, and now it's becoming a little bit more, I guess, normalized and less taboo and less, you know, it's more talked about and encouraged. But in the past, it wasn't as much, and so I want to hear kind of your opinion on if you feel like. You know, oftentimes when folks, you know, talked about therapy um, or seeing a psychiatrist or psychologist was like when they had gone through some really serious traumas or serious situations. But, you know, it wasn't like very much encouraged just as even like a preventative measure, just from like a standard like mental health standpoint of like, you know, um, just being in tune with your mind and and being comfortable with yourself and, you know, just being in a good state of, I guess, mind. So I guess, would you recommend it? to like who would you recommend it to or would you recommend everyone figure out you know perhaps obviously therapy is one thing but also finding someone like a life coach to help them navigate through those early days of their career um and getting them on track to being i guess happy with whatever they're doing yeah that's a good question i i I think that you know the formula varies from person to person but in my state of mind and my opinion on this is I think it's really important to be balanced in in life and a lot of people like I was I was raised with a, a father who had a super strong work ethic he never took a day off when he was a school teacher so he could build up enough uh 
time so that he could like retire like a year or two early. It was like, he never took a day off. Even if he was sick, he never went on a vacation. He never did anything. And you know, he, 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 he got, he got burnt out. And, uh, but that strong work ethic of was, was instilled in me, but some, you know, there's that saying work to live, don't live to work. And I feel like balance is key. So I have to focus on a healthy mind, healthy body, and healthy um, spirit. And part of like the healthy spirit or healthy mind is definitely having someone to bounce ideas off of. And that either can be a life coach, a mentor, or a therapist. Because if you're in your head and you're not open-minded and you're too in your head and you're too stuck on problems and trying to problem solve by yourself, you're just going to be that hamster on the wheel and you're not going to be able to get out of your own way. Right. Because the reality is, you know, life is fucking hard, right? It's it like, is. It's very fucking hard, especially if you're someone who's ambitious and wants to take on the world and be an entrepreneur and start something like it, there, there are a lot of lonely moments um, because you're on your own at the end of the day. Um, yeah. You know, it's, and so having, in my opinion, like having someone that could help you, like you said, balance out, all these sort of thoughts because it is a roller coaster is just it's it's like a superpower in my opinion Um, (laughs) it's like something that it's like having that is so important and so i just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on it but um yeah thanks for sharing that but so i guess so let's kind of fast forward a little bit so you you talk about those early days of page what was it like you know what were some of the challenges you dealt with you know at this point you i'm sure had to find people you know the manufacturers and the designers and how did you go about putting this whole thing together did you have to raise money like how did you how did you get it going yeah well i so may 2004 was the idea june 2004 was the separating from the other jobs that i had and trying to figure out investors so i did have a few people that I knew personally that I thought could be potential investors. And so I put together my storyboards and my ideas and went and gave presentations to three different people that were top of mind that, you know, one was a real estate, international real estate person that, you know, always loved um, investing in in different things, Uh, real estate, gas stations, you name it. There was all different kinds of things he was into. Um, Someone else that was a a billionaire that, you know, owned the island of Lanai. And uh, a friend of mine was involved in a relationship with him. So I was like, hey, I'll go pitch him. And then another person was uh, an investor friend of uh, actually someone who our accountant, my husband and my accountant knew and recommended. And he's someone who had been in the um, investment banking world and thought that he would be a great asset. So I pitched these ideas and, you know, realized that the, you know, some people loved the idea, but, you know, they wanted to have total control or creative control. You know, another person that I pitched to, I, I realized that, like, I think he was so involved in so many things and, I, I don't didn't know if I could totally trust him. And the third person I felt like, okay, you know, he seems like the most solid guy who's he's been an investment banker and he knows our accountant and he seems strong. So let's go that route. So I actually What were you but what were you like pitching? Like what were, the, what were those pitches like? How much were you trying to raise? Did you even know what you were doing? Like were you just throwing out like numbers or did you like have like a very clear cut strategy of like I'm only gonna give away this much for this much and it's gonna be 
Yeah. How did you? Do uh, that? No, in hindsight, like that is what I wish I knew a little bit um, more about at the time. Cause, um, you know, I had, I had never gone to business school, but I was business minded, but I was so excited about the idea and didn't know exactly. I had an idea of how much I thought it would take to, uh, as a startup, but the pitch was more, uh, getting them excited about the product, the, the name, the idea and the, what we could build this into in the future. It's like, so let's start with a denim company. Let's start with a women's denim company. Let's start with the focus that I'm going to be the, like a reason to be, cause there's always a, like, why there's so many denim companies out there. Like why, why should someone buy your denim company? Like, why should they buy your line? And the idea was like the first woman, the first female founder, creating this premium denim from this perspective, because ultimately there's a lot of customers that I am speaking to that I know would want to buy the product, then developing something that was more feminine in denim that was different than something else out, everything else that was out there. And then saying like expressing what, what the packaging would look like, what the brand would be called. And I could build an emotional connection if I called the brand page to a consumer and I could do personal appearances and we could expand. And then Mm. I want to do more than denim lifestyle, then expand into men's. And so there was the big idea. At the time there were like all these other denim companies, like where were you, what angle were you coming into the market from? Was it, was it like a drastically different design from the others? Was it like a lower or higher price point? Um, were you attracting a different, trying to attract a different, you know, customer base, like what, or was it pretty in line with everything else that existed at the time? No, I was really focused on the, the femininity of denim and like making sure that it was sexy, feminine with a little bit of rock and roll, which are all parts of my Gemini personality. And there, there was brands that were heavy into rock and roll or very decorated. Like at that time there was like heavy back pockets and lots of stitching and like over the top denim where the jeans wore you, you didn't wear the jeans and it was like heavy, mm. heavy into design. Yeah. And I the remember pho- those days. yeah, I remember those days. So the philosophy was to have something very sleek based on different fits for different body types, especially, um, you know, uh, thinking about inclusivity with not all people are built the same way. And let's focus on different silhouettes for different shapes with this feminine, sexy rock and roll edge, but then keeping things clean so that you wear the jeans, the jeans don't wear you, and that they could go back to anything else in your wardrobe. And almost like if you were going to a designer store and you were buying something, Dolce & Gabbana or Gucci or whatever, and you had beautiful clothes to wear on top, you could wear them with your jeans and they were discreet, but you looked amazing. So Paige, you know, there's obviously certain things when you start a fashion company that you have to do. You have to design whatever you're making. You got to go and find a manufacturer. You got to actually make the thing, you know, right? You have you have it in your hands. Yeah. But then the second part and the tougher part, in my opinion, is selling it. Who the hell is going to buy this stuff, right? right? There was no not that there wasn't social media back then because I think there was MySpace in 2004. Um, but e-commerce, but was, yeah, e-commerce wasn't really necessarily huge, but or even a thing. So, how did you start selling this stuff? I mean, was it calling up retailers and saying, "Hey, I have pants," and showing up there and selling it yourself? Was it you know? I, I, tell us a little bit about how you sold that first pair of paid jeans. Yeah. So the idea when I put together the the storyboards and the presentation to the potential investors 
was focusing on on those facts that I was expressing to you, but then adding on the fact that the most important things that you need to start the business were to create a buzz factor, like to have a buzz factor, even though there wasn't social media back then, but to get the word out. So um, we wanted to make sure that I had a PR agency that was representing Paige that could get that buzz feed out there, get that, get the word out page. The top denim model is going to start her own brand. Um, the second thing was to find a really good showroom that could take the line in and they had the contacts and the relationship with the retailers. So that was really important. And then of course to have a great product and then, you know, to have the money behind it. So, um, once we, and when you say we, was it, are you talking about yourself and the investors or, or did you have like a co-founder and someone else you started the business with? Yeah. So what ended up happening is I, my, I, I was married now at this time and my husband had been in the, in the, in the clothing business where he had a company where he made private label for retailers such as like Walmart, Kmart and, um, it, it never had done denim, but had had the experience with Walmart and Kmart and was in the fashion industry, if you will. So when I came home and said that this is the idea that I had to start Paige, that my life coach had suggested this to me, um, he said, oh my God, if you don't do this, you're going to regret this the rest of your life. It's like amazing because even when we'd traveled, we'd ask, what are the top selling denim brands? And they'd say seven or citizens or, and they were always the brands that I fit for. And so he's like, you, you're onto something, you have to do this. And so when I say we, um, basically I'm considered co-founder, me and my husband. And what happened is I was able to incubate the company inside of the company that he was partners in with another investor and share expenses and start the company that way. So we could share expenses. It wasn't all, all the overhead wasn't on our shoulders. And the the part that, that we regretted was bringing in an investor who we gave a little bit too much of the pie to out of the gate. So that was a that was a sad part and a and a and a and a difficult decision, but we did need the equity and we did need. Did you end up having to like buy out buy out that investor for more money than you would have liked to spend or or whatever whatever yeah, happened to that? That that is like one of our biggest regrets because um, we we didn't we were moving so fast and the opportunities were coming so quickly that we didn't make super smart decisions out of the gate and when he ultimately was a difficult partner to get rid of, but didn't add anything to the business, like a silent partner that just financed and then didn't really have any, any day-to-day responsibilities and uh, was a bully. Let's put it that way. Not a really nice guy and a bully. Um, When, when we it came to a point that private equity investors were interested in the brand, our first private equity investors were TSG Consumer Partners. Um, when they serenaded us and and wanted to be part of the Page family, um, we bought him out. And uh, yeah, but he we lost a big chunk. Our TSG bought him out, 
we bought him out too, but we lost a big chunk of the business too soon. Mm-hmm. I think I kind of sidetracked this thing. So going back to Pasha's question, um, yeah. so tell us a little bit about the first kind of big sale that you had. Like, did you, was it like a department store or how did you, you know, what was like that first big order and where did things go from there? Yeah. So, um, we, in so thinking about that for a second. So we went to the Coterie trade show. And so this was in September, 2004, when we launched the brand. And for those of you who don't know what the Coterie trade show is, it's a big trade show where all the retailers come from all around the world to come look at the new collections and new lines or lines that are already established and decide what they want to buy and write their orders. And, and so you had a booth? we had a booth. Yeah, we had a booth and we had a showroom that was representing Paige. So the showroom was called Brothers and Sisters and they carried about seven different brands and we were one of the brands and we had our booth at the trade show and they made the announcement to all the retailers, come see our new brand that we're representing Paige. And the retailers came to look at the brand. And what's crazy is that we had projected that maybe we would do $3 million in our first year and had bought enough fabric and and had prepared for everything to be able to produce about $3 million worth of product. And at that first trade show, we had like lines waiting to come in to look at the collection. And we actually wrote $3 million worth of business in that first trade show. And we were wow. like, holy shit, this is just for a season. Like this is just and was for- that directly to like customers or was it like two department stores and places that were going to carry your product? That we wrote $3 million in orders to the retailers. So like, like, uh, Harvey Nichols in London, um, uh, Bergdorf Goodman, Neiman Marcus, little tiny retailer specialty boutiques. So internationally out of the gate, we did that yeah. much business in retail So they would basically orders. give you a PO and say, we're going to order X amount of items. And then yes. you, you had to go and produce them after that. Yes. So yes. where'd you find $3 million from? Where did we find $3 million from to, pr- to produce the goods? Well, yeah, did, from- you have to get, did you get the money up front or was it after you delivered the product? We get the money after you deliver the product. So yes, that was mm-hmm. from our original investor. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, because I think that that's probably one of the biggest issues. And, that self, you see and in self-funded like, too, our own money. Right, 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 but it helps when you have like the POs of like, it hey, does, yeah. Marcus is going to order. It does, yeah. You, know, you can get that money on a note. You don't even have to give equity. Or just away. a loan. Right, exactly. A note, a loan, and then you can just pay it back with interest, for hopefully, sure. you know, period of time without interest. Yeah. So obviously, you know, Paige has been around now for almost 17 years. It's beyond, you know, just a woman's brand i mean i own a pair of page jeans which are which are great because every time you put it on it's like you put on like solid butter you know i don't know that's how i like to describe it. when i touch it i just feel like it's like a nice smooth butter but like <laughs> doubling my word butter. butter butter is i combine smooth and butter to butter um but you know you know it's you don't see a lot of fashion brands staying around for that long right like i see a lot of them, especially these days with how easy it's become to launch a company using shopify and you know, being, you know, direct to consumer and not even going the retail route at all. You know, a lot of them just come and go, come and go. And I don't even know what they differentiate differentiate on, to be honest. Probably not. They just buy the same item and just, you they know, just, smack their yeah. tag on it and yeah. sell it on a Shopify, you know, <sighs> drop ship it from China. How has that progression, you know, from being this, you know, omni-channel or having to be an omni-channel brand to, you know, 
now you see companies and competitors that are just direct to consumer e-commerce. How has that affected Page, if at all, or perhaps in a positive way? How has it helped impact the business positively? Oh, it's been a, a positive, positive thing as e-commerce, especially during this pandemic. Um, you know, we're a brand that definitely believes in multi-channels. So being able to work with retailers, have our own retail stores, as well as our own online business and online business with other retailers that we work with, um, I think are all critical to the business. Um, being able to get the brand out there and the name out there with as many voices as possible just helps with brand strength. And, mm -hmm. you know, I definitely think we would have never made it through COVID if we didn't have a lot of direct to consumer business of our own. And uh, we've been really grateful for that, but it has been a, a headache and a heartache because, you know, when we launched there, there, you know, it was basically just dealing with other retailers like specialty right. boutiques and the major department stores worldwide. Right. And then um, having to build your own site uh, and, and work through those problems. Uh, they're very challenging and very difficult because at first we didn't have our own website. We worked through a fulfillment company called One Stop and we didn't really yep. have the opportunity to have our own voice and our own presence because we had to work through them and do it their way. And um, that was very difficult. But now we, we've been building our own site and we're still wiring and rewiring and trying to make it perfect. But what's beautiful is that you have the ability to tell the story the way you want to tell it every day and change things out that aren't working and put different pictures up and images and, and have the, the voice you know, spread worldwide through your own eyes, like my own creative eyes and lens. As a, as a fashion founder, what did you, or what were you, I should say, surprised by the most early on in your career running page about the industry? What was I surprised about the most about the industry? Oh, you know, I don't like to be negative, but I think what I was surprised the most about the industry is how... You are really responsible for your own destiny almost all of the time because you have partnerships with a lot of these retailers and these big department stores. But what was so crazy is I had no idea or what is so crazy is I had no idea that you're selling product to the retailers, especially these big department stores. And if they don't sell it, they basically want to return it or charge you back money for markdown money and make you pay for what doesn't work on their end. And they don't take full accountability and responsibility for what they decided to order and what their projections were for their own consumer. Like it's your fault that we can't sell your product. Fault. Yes. And they'll come up with like, oh, we want you to do a special for us. And will you design this? And it's something that wasn't in the line. And we'll produce it. We'll create it. We'll make it. We'll sell it to them. And if it doesn't work, we want you to take it all back. And like the 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 responsibility never really lies on their shoulders. They're always coming back to you for more money. And then if you don't work with them on their terms, then the idea becomes, well, we'll just find someone else who will do it. And right. so that, ruthless. that was ruthless and an eye-opening experience for me. But luckily, um, I believe in partnerships and I believe in, you know, really trying to be as flexible as possible and delivering 
great product and great quality product. And I always feel like it's like survival of the fittest, you know, the, 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 the more you can negotiate and the more you can actually try to work with them the best that you can. Cause you want, ultimately we want the product to sell too. I want the product to sell right. too. And if it isn't working, it's like, you're not going to force yeah. it. But, I think it's a testament to like the beauty of sort of the democratization and the shift to uh, e-commerce and sort of being in control and not living and dying by whatever the retailers do and, you know, having that ability to have direct communication with your customer base. And uh, it's all up to you at that point. I mean, it's your responsibility and it, it truly is because then it's like, well, if it's not selling, we can't blame anybody, but right. you don't have to worry that it's out of your hands and, and what they're doing. Like they're putting your product in the corner of like the, the, the floor of the department store that no one goes to. Yeah. And what are you supposed to do about that? Right. And so I guess with that said, you know, what um, are you most excited about when it comes to the future of the industry? Like, let's say the next five to 10 years and where it's going. And then also specifically about what you're doing at page and where you see it going with where things are going. I'm still really hopeful about the fashion industry. Um, I'm, I'm really proud of how far we've come from like starting off and incubating, you know, this idea into a larger company, thinking about it as just first premium denim and then expanding from premium denim to a life full lifestyle brand for men and women, even doing shoes and still having more product expansion. Um, well, our brand is actually stronger than it's ever been 16 years in. I feel like it's sweet 16 for us. And being able to overcome so many obstacles and have resilience and provide great product and have a strong voice and a strong story and continue to deliver the product through the lens of of the eyes of our brand and stay true to our brand. The brand has strength and the brand has equity. It makes me excited because I feel like that dream of becoming an iconic brand that'll be here for years to come feels like it's happening. We're in the middle of it and there's still so much more to explore and so much to do. And we're still creating beautiful product and the customer's still voting for it. And to me, that speaks volumes. Like I love how you bring that up because I feel like that kind of um, mindset of the, you know the long game is a little bit lost these days, where people expect something quicker. And with the again the advent of social media and you know seeing getting a window into all these people's lives and um, sort of this grass is greener thing, where you know it seems like you know other people are doing better than you or whatever. It, it, it causes people to not go the you know the length and just kind of quit and switch gears and sometimes that's a good thing sometimes it's not a good thing because in your case like if you didn't stick it through for 16 years like you wouldn't have seen the growth that you're seeing now and so uh, you know i guess um you know is that i mean what would you tell people like that you know are maybe I, I guess for you have you ever been in those situations where you felt like you know up until now um you know, maybe I can be doing something better or different, or it just sounds like you were very, very focused on building this thing and you knew it was going to take a long time or how did you kind of approach it? It's, it's uh, slow and steady wins the race has always been my philosophy. Um, I've never believed in instant gratification or I never have wanted to have a one hit wonder. Um, I, I feel like that, that, Fast expectation of, of instant gratification gets people in, in trouble all too often. And so I, I feel like there's always been a calm inner peace that has 
led me to the vision because there's always like, I never get bored. And there's always like, as a creative director and as a founder of the company and as the voice of the company, like there's always been something that makes us excited to keep working as hard as we work. It's like, what's next? And then what, what next can we do? And then the a voice of wanting to be able to give back. It's like, I'm so passionate about philanthropy and giving back and have always wanted to be successful so I could give back. And I think when you have that inner drive and that inner strength and that, that vision that, that it's like you're running the marathon, not, not the sprint. It's like, I'm really running the marathon. I want this for the long haul. Plus it's a family business and protecting the family is so important and protecting the family business and the livelihood of all those that are part of page that all of that together combined is the fuel that, that keeps us going and that keeps me going. I guess in particular, I don't want to say us, me. It's like, that's what gets me out of bed every morning going, okay, what do we have to do today to, 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 to do better, to be better? And there's certainly been times throughout these years that it's been scary. You know, like, are we going to get through this year, especially 2007, 2008, when the economy crashed and especially at the beginning of this pandemic, like I was petrified, like what's, what's going to happen. But, um, I, I, I think we all have an inner strength and a confidence in what we're doing. And, um, I don't know if that answers your question, but no, it, it does. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I just kind of wanted to, to get your thoughts on like for specifically for you, you know, how the journey has been. Cause it is so, such a common thing. And sometimes again, like I said, it's like, it could be the right choice to, to shift gears if something's not working out. Um, because sometimes you, you could get sucked into, you know, just like this never ending thing that, you know, there's no end to it. Um, it's just, for whatever reason, the economics don't make sense or something, but there is this little blind optimism that is needed, I think, to be an entrepreneur because, and, and knowing that this could very well, whatever you're working on could take 10, 15, 20 years and you have to be okay with that and you have to be comfortable with that. Well, pivot <laughs> has been a pivotal word during this pandemic, that's for sure. And there's been lots of pivots through the years in the company when you're you know going down one path and you're like, this isn't really working and you have to be able to identify like what's not working and try something different. And like, I'm not afraid of change. I'm not afraid of, of like really like the little nine bars that are on the back of the each pair of page jeans, that there are little nine bars that stand for nine lives. That to me means you always have to evolve, grow and change. And if you're doing the same thing today that you were doing yesterday, then there's something wrong. Like every day there needs to be uh, the concern and the desire to have an open mind and to keep trying things different. And like today, if I were to start the company today, I would start it as a direct to consumer company and, 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 and start, start it from there and be able to tell the story and do everything with my own website and with our own web voice. And then maybe we, you know, after doing, uh, our, our own, um, direct to consumer channel between, the internet and uh, a direct like to retail consumer stores, then I would start, you know, expanding out into other retailers. Uh, that would be the change I'd make now. And there's a lot of things that I would have done differently through the years, but 
you know, grateful. I even made a, you know, we made bad choices in the beginning of like the logo. It was called Page Premium Denim and it was a real feminine logo. And it was like, <laughs> oh, wow, I, uh, I didn't future trip enough. I, like I forgot that that's not going to work on a guy's jean and that the logo needs to be changed and it shouldn't say premium denim if we want to build a full lifestyle brand. So there's lots of mistakes along the way and being able to like pick yourself up and be resilient, which I've done in my own personal life. And I think that's the same philosophy that we bring into the company um, and allow other people to make mistakes within the company and know that we can get through them um, together uh, has been, I think, part of the the strength of the brand. Paige, you know, I'm curious, you early on talk about being this extroverted introvert and going through different phases of, you know, having a lack of confidence, the confidence to, you know, you know, back down. It's just kind of like this, I don't want to call it a roller coaster, but ebbs and flows of like, you know, during your life. And you talked about how you wanted to build a company that was different than what you had experienced uh, during that, you know, situation. Mm -hmm. Um, how, How do you think you've done so far? Oh, Thank you for asking that. I I think we've done a really good job. I feel that um, on a day-to-day basis, we treat our team team members with um, a lot of confidence and kindness and grace. There's no yelling or screaming at the company. You know, there's never been any sexual harassment lawsuits. Um... Uh, people are allowed to express their feelings and their vo- use their voices. Uh, it's always a team spirited uh, mindset when when we're coming to the table and bringing up ideas. There's never any bad ideas, and you know I think allowing that we've had team members that have been with us from day one that are still at the company 16 years. We've had team members who've left and then said, I don't like it out there. It's a scary world out there. Can we come back? And, you know, other women that I've watched, like literally start off as an assistant, uh, grow into being like the lead designer. She's the one who was able to like, you know, buy the house for the family and the husband stays at home and, and is taking care of the child. And, you know, I've been able to watch all of this happen through the last 16 years on so many different levels and vice versa with men. And, and we've never had any lawsuits about, you know, with any um, discrimination in any way. And so I, I really feel like people's voices are heard and that uh, people love working, working here. I'm really proud of how long we've had so many people. And, you know, you talk about Paige being a family business, which I love. You know, I think we've done about 100, almost 180 episodes of this show so far. And we've talked to we've talked to a lot of people. Um, and, you know, the one thing, at least for me, that I've really enjoyed is when you hear about very successful companies on a global level that are still run like a family business almost, mm-hmm. right? Like totally corporate and, you know, definitely a system involved but a family business nonetheless like for me i think you know if i would ever be like a true entrepreneur of my own company like that's the type of culture i would want to build but i imagine it's not a very easy thing to do and to maintain you know how, how do you do it i mean not only you your husband was a co-founder but you know maintaining a culture like that for 15 16 plus years some people can't even do that for their families right you can't even maintain a family culture like that 
how can you do it in a company where people are not even there 24 seven? <laughs> well, I have to, I also have to bring up another, um, one of my partners, his name is Michael Henschel. He's the COO of the company. And I've often joked because my husband, Michael and Michael Henschel were partners in the previous business together. The Target Walmart one. Yes. And, uh, they have been married longer than me and my husband. So I like joke around that they're the old married couple in the company. And, uh, you know, I, I get to be the, the newer model, <laughs> the newer wife, if you will. But um, I am thrilled because no one really ever wants to get into the Everyone loves the prospective roles that they have within the company and wouldn't really want to be doing the other person's job. So we we allow the ability to, um, you know, not micromanage each other. It's like you do your job, I'll do my job. And then when I need uh, to help solve problems, let's all come together and bounce ideas around together as a unit and then go back and respect um, what your job is and your expertise is and how things run. And that's very much, um, the way that my husband and I, uh, are on a daily basis with each other too. It's like, we, we have a lot of same interests, but like, you know, when we each have things that we want to do separately, you go do your thing, we'll come back and do our thing. And, and it's great. We get along so well. There's never fights. I don't think we've ever had any, any fights within the company. And then now my, my, my stepkids who are my, I call them bonus kids because they are bonus kids. Step adults um, are also key players in the company. My stepdaughter also went to USC and um, she's the director of marketing at Page, and the right son is um, also like the director of men's, creative director of men's, and uh, and is also really involved in the business. So we all work together. And under this pandemic, it's been crazy because um, uh, my stepdaughter is living with us with her husband. And so there's key three key players like in the same house under the same roof running the business. And, you know, that, that part's been great, but, um, it, it is like a family and, you know, what was so beautiful is we just took on a new, um, international group called Brahma took us on and, uh, they're like international distributors and, uh, they are the same kind of very family oriented, company and they've had people that have worked with them for years and the connection that they had with us is knowing that we're the same philosophy wise and that they can feel the warmth and the shoulder to shoulder part of the company and are very drawn to that and i think that warmth and shoulder to shoulder way of running the business inside the company like a family is also what people pick up on when they that's the connection they have to the brand. And the reason why I wanted to call right. the brand page is so people would actually know that there, there, there's a face behind the brand and, and I could build that emotional connection to, to the consumer. Right. Well, Paige, you know, I feel like we could just sit here and talk for another two hours, three hours more probably. Uh, but we know you have to go and get back to your family and, yeah. and, and, and your work family too. Uh, and yeah. you know, it's been nothing but a pleasure to, you know, chat with you and 
learn about your story and everything that you've gone through. And I think that it's a huge inspiration, not just to other women, but just to, to everyone, right, who have had rough patches in their life, who've had, you know, the best of moments, the lowest of moments. But regardless, we're able to just get through it, find their purpose and passion, and then just build 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 and just go without stopping without even thinking about what's happening and just pursue success and pursue that purpose so i think you're a true testament to that and hopefully one day we can you know do this in a live setting with uh with you and you know maybe even some guests who can come and hear us out just like the first time i met you with professor durbin at usc so uh it's been it's been so awesome to hear your story oh, thank you so much